Hello, my name is Nick Spasic, and you're listening to From and Inspired By, a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with composer Joe Kramer about his work on such films as Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, The Way of the Gun, Jack Reacher, and The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then The Bigfoot. Composer Joe Kramer has worked on such films as Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, The Way of the Gun, Jack Reacher, and The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, among many other movies and television programs. He's absolutely aces at blending action themes and emotional resonance, thanks to his work for author Andrew Cartmel on the Vinyl Detective soundtrack release, for which he composed the book's theme. We were able to connect with him for a career-spanning interview, which we conducted back in February. you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me there are so many things that i want to talk to you about great let's do it the first thing like everything i've read about you talks about the fact that you composed your first score for like a super eight movie when you were 15 yeah that's true <laughs> like how that's do you true. i've been doing this a long time like how do you even like make a score for a film when you're 15 and it's 1986 yeah it was um it was a different time technologically speaking and things were a lot more primitive um so in a way it was easier because no one really expected to be able to do anything <laughs> so if you could even just sort of write a piece of music and record it that was an achievement all of its own whether it was good or bad um my friend scott storm who i still work with now um on projects was wrote and directed feature films on super eight uh which is bonkers you <laughs> the technology again was so primitive uh you know you had to buy film and you could buy it in rolls of two minute two minutes so you know your takes were limited in how long they could be 
And he, rather than sort of shooting in a sort of more conventional way where you shoot all sorts of coverage, he would sort of storyboard the scene out and then shoot exactly what he needed, and that was it. Oh, wow. Because he didn't have the money to <laughs> burn feet of film, uh, you know, as uh, for an over-the-shoulder shot where it was just my face. Because I was also an actor in it. And um, that's, in fact, how I met him, is he cast me in the film. And while we were shooting, I asked him about what he uses for music in his movies. And I had a home studio because my father was a hobbyist musician. He worked in computers during the day, but he wrote and recorded his own songs with his brother, my uncle, uh, on weekends. And we had a four track and a couple of synthesizers and I had a guitar and we would all rec write, record these songs. And so I just grew up in this environment where, you know, uh, my my dad and my uncle had experimented with Super 8 films in the 60s, making stop motion things and then making music that would play along with it. And this whole environment of experimentation with technology. Uh, my grandfather was a projectionist uh, in a movie theater. And again, I, all these influences were coming at me. So when I was doing this movie, having been a huge fan of John Williams and Vangelis, his score for Chariots of Fire and the score to Tron, you know, the thought of doing a synthesizer score for this movie uh, didn't seem outlandish to me. And I, I thought it'd be fun to try. And when I mentioned it to the director, Scott, he was just really excited by the possibility. You know, so it, I just sort of grew up in an environment where I wasn't afraid to try things. <laughs> and, you know, that's sort of how it happened. That's a long answer to a short question. I'm sorry about that. But no, that's, that's sort of how it happened, you know. That's fantastic. And what I, I you, you said something there that I, I, I think goes a long way to like explaining like all of the different films you've scored, like, because you are not bound, uh, by genre, <laughs> which I really appreciate in a composer. Like you well, thanks, man. It's interesting because in a weird way, I'm pigeonholed as somebody who isn't definable for one specific thing. Uh, which in a weird way is, you know, <laughs> there's a there's a contradiction in that statement. And yet it's sort of true. And it's been an interesting ride, you know, to do something really big like Mission Impossible. And then uh, kind of step aside and take projects that are more interesting rather than projects that are big for their own sake. Um, uh, probably if I've been if I've been categorized as anything, it would probably be sort of a retro composer, which is a which is an interesting position to be in in the face of some of the behemoths <laughs> of the composing scene right now, namely like Zimmer and his army of composers who are sort of the forefront of contemporary sound. And I'm kind of the opposite of that. What uh, I found so, so amazing, um, speaking of sort of like a, a, a retro feel, um, like when I was in college, um, when Way of the Gun came out, that was like a very big deal for like me and all my film nerd friends because wow. it's like, Oh my God, it's Christopher McQuarrie's director directorial <laughs> debut. This is going to be amazing. And we could not fathom why that movie wasn't like this big deal thing. Uh, looking back, I kind of understand because it is sort of like a very, it, it's, it's an odd duck. And like, I, I think like one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you about it is because like the back half of that movie 
is almost completely sans dialogue. Like that is one of the things that like I have always remembered about it. And I just can't imagine like that's, you know, that's Christopher McQuarrie's thing. That's like one of your, you know, like that's an early score. Trademark of his. And that's an early score for you. So like, there's a lot of work that you have to do as a composer in that back half because it's basically just score and sound effects. Like there's not a lot of talking. It's a lot of people dying, but it's not a lot of people talking. It's interesting because it was an early work for me in the public eye. And yet I had been scoring movies for 15 years when it came (laughs) out uh, in terms of my own experience and and the amount of practice I'd had. Uh, and I'd gone to Berkeley in Boston where I'd spent, you know, uh, a good four years really intensely studying it with professors and teachers. And then since then had really devoted myself almost a hundred percent to composition, to story analysis, to, you know, I'd even, I'd made films on my own and I directed my own projects, uh, obviously on a sort of, uh, semi-professional level. Uh, so I had all this experience and, I was able to, or not able to, it was important for me to rely on all of that to get through that movie, uh, through the process of scoring that movie. I mean, on top of, on top of the challenges of the movie itself, the studio had no confidence in me. <laughs> um, really, the thing was, uh, they had no confidence in anybody working on the film, on the, on the production side, you know, and, and like they didn't, they didn't, they bought the script and approved the movie because the director had written the usual suspects and won an Oscar for writing it. And they, I don't think anybody really read the script and thought about what they were making. So then they saw the first cut and they're like, Oh my God, we just made, you know, a three hour movie with no dialogue about people who kidnap a baby, you know? (laughs) And there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, panicking on the part of the studio in terms of trying to figure out what to do with this thing and, and how to sort of mold it into shape. There was a lot of pressure to put fill it up with rock songs in a sort of Tarantino-esque pastiche, uh, which, you know, I'll say this. Uh, the director really backed me up in terms of the final product, uh, in terms of, you know, there's really there's a there's a few songs in the movie. But overall, it's a score driven soundtrack. And uh, there were opportunities he that were presented to the director where he could have replaced me with people he whose work he admired. And he even met with some of them. Uh, he was forced to, and in the end, he stuck with me, and I'll always be grateful for that. Um, yeah, in terms of getting through it, it was just, uh, you know, we tried everything we could um, uh, in terms of instrumentation, in terms of uh, composition, until we found what we thought worked best uh, for that film. I'm, I'm curious. <clears throat> Since then, you've done quite a few... Um films like in the mystery woman series for for hallmark and you've also done um like several sequels like like house of the dead 2 and joyride Mm -hmm. 2 i i'm i'm curious as to like as a composer like when you're coming in to a series be it you know like uh like tv movies or like an established sort of franchise uh I guess like how, how do you uh, approach that? Because like you're having to provide continuity, but I also imagine that you want to bring your own voice to it. 
Yeah, it's interesting. The, the, uh, um, the first concern, the first consideration is uh, more of a legal one, which mm. is am I allowed to use any thematic material from earlier installments? And surprisingly, I'm often not. So mm. in the case of Joyride 2 and Hitcher 2, those are two that come to mind. Uh, we didn't have any rights to the music that had been written for the originals. Uh, Mark Isham did the first Hitcher. I can't remember who did the first Joyride. Unfortunately, I apologize. Um, what was another sequel that you mentioned? Um, uh, House of the Dead 2. Uh, you know, the writer of House of the Dead 1 was also the writer of House of the Dead 2. And he's somebody that I've done a, a lot of work with, a, a guy named uh, Mark Altman, who also I'm doing Pandora with right now, the TV series. Um, he wanted he wanted House of the Dead 2 to be as different from House of the Dead 1 as possible. He was very frustrated. I don't want to speak for him, but my understanding is he was very frustrated with the process and the final result of, of the original film. It's kind of infamous. You know. So, I, you know, in those situations, the mandate was do something completely different. And the closest I got to referencing the original in those three films was in Hitcher 2, there was a flashback that sort of creatively showed what C. Thomas Howell had gone through in the original film. <laughs> um, and while I didn't use any of the themes, I sort of used, I went through my library of, of synthesizers that I had and found sounds that reminded me of the sound of Mark Isham's score. And I tried to reference it in a sonic way rather than in a melodic or thematic way to at least draw some connection. Um, I do a lot of work for the Big Finish, uh, which is a company that makes audio dramas, which are sort of like audio books, but with a full cast and sound effects and no narrator. And uh, it's in the Doctor Who universe. Mm. And I'm not allowed to actually use the Doctor Who theme in any of those. So I have to find sort of creative ways to evoke the feeling of that theme when I want to, uh, when I want to do so without actually using any of the notes. So I've got, I've sort of become adept at, I, I hope, at uh, referencing something without actually infringing on a copyright. Um, in the case of Mystery Woman, I did the original and then the 10 sequels that followed so uh, I was able to use my own material and develop it uh, as I liked. And my model for that was generally the way John Williams developed things in the Star Wars sequels oh. or the Indiana Jones sequels. So I looked it up. <clears throat> the original Joyride score was my Marco Beltrami. And I know Marco. Sorry, Marco. <laughs> He's done so many films, I can't remember all of them. I thought it was either him or maybe Graham Ravel. But yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, um, you've You've done... Um, some documentaries, including like one of my favorite of like the last uh, few years, the Larry Cohen documentary, <laughs> King Cohen, which makes you, I think, the third person I've talked to about that movie. I talked to the director and I got to talk to Larry Cohen about it. Um, wow. <clears throat> yeah, I just had lunch with Steve last week. And it's such a fascinating documentary because, I mean, it, it, it demonstrates like all of the different facets of, you know, and the different styles that he did, which to me seems like a perfect thing for you. Um, like, was it fun to be able to like work in all of these different sort of milieus within yeah. one film? Yeah, it was really fun. It was, it was, you know, 
<coughs> documentaries have a certain uh, can documentaries often can have a certain sort of technical requirement that movies don't have as much. And that is when you're using uh, film clips uh, from pre-existing material. I did a documentary about Ralph Nader that had a similar um, circumstance. And usually you're sort of using fair use and you have a lawyer go over the film with a fine tooth comb and they say, <laughs> you can use this many seconds of this and then you have to get out of it. Otherwise you start risking violating fair use. And as a result, you'll have a, in the case of King Cohen, for example, you might be, you might show Eric Roberts talking about the ambulance. <laughs> then you cut to a clip from the ambulance. Then you cut back to Eric Roberts and then you cut back to a clip from the movie. Well, the clips from the movie might have the score in there for that film underneath the dialogue and sound effects. When you cut back to Eric, you can't use the music from the film. So you end up with this sort of hole in the soundtrack when you cut back to Eric. So um, one of the tasks I had was to write pieces of music that could cover that hole, again, without infringing on the copyright, but without also calling attention to the fact that they were different than the clips you were hearing in the movie. So like uh, the movie and God, you know, God told me to, mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a piece of music that I could, it was in the same key and it used the same instruments so that the editors, if they needed to, could segue out of a film clip and across an interview and then back into a film clip. That's the kind of thing you don't generally have to do so much in feature films. Um, and that's very technical, and that's driven, and so the, the choices I have to make as a composer are driven entirely by the music that's in those films. So I had to create some music that sort of reminded you of Q, The Winged Serpent, or The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, which are all totally different kinds <laughs> of scoring, or it, you know, um, It's Alive, uh, or The Stuff. And then on top of that was the sort of score for the film itself, which was a, a musical representation that Stephen, Steve Mitchell and I worked out for Larry, who was kind of a showman and kind of a ringmaster, but at his heart, you know, an artist and a filmmaker and a writer and, and, and a real New Yorker. And so there's a sort of jazz influence to Larry's theme. And we did a couple of different treatments of it and then the editor would pick uh certain versions of it you know i might have one that's a solo piano version and then a version that's uh an electric piano and then a version that's an organ and then a version with a whole rhythm section and they're all the same theme but the treatment of it was chosen sometimes by the editor and steve uh kai was the editor um and sometimes you know i did it and then you know they went with the one i did and sometimes they wanted alts so they could pick and uh, that was a more there's a more there's more of a continuity with the Larry thematic material and then the more technical stuff is a hodgepodge of all these different films that Larry's made speaking of hodgepodge um, mm -hmm. one of one of your uh, more recent uh, works was for the man who killed Hitler and then the big Bigfoot which yep. which is a movie that like when it was, you know, you hear the elevator pitch, which is sure. essentially the title. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. You think it's going to be like a, a goofy, you know, like straight to video, you know, sci-fi channel type thing. And it's, right. it's so emotional. Like that movie hit me in the heart in a way I didn't expect the the scene where Calvin and his brother Ed 
like are just sitting next to each other on that park bench mm. might be one of like the most touching <laughs> scenes yeah. I've seen in forever. And I'm just like, that's one of those things where it's like, it's, it's kind of a Western. It's kind of an action movie. It's kind of a war thriller. It's kind of a romance. It's kind of like a, like a, like a swan song, you know, like elegiac kind of right. picture. Oh um, yeah. Like, where did you come into that project? Cause I have to imagine that's not like an easy thing to pull off. Like if you're coming in last minute. So yeah, I will. Um, I had just done mission impossible. Uh, and I'd been living in England for six months and I came back to America uh, hadn't seen my family for six months and I had just settled in and was sort of waiting for the phone to start ringing for, you know, big action movies and Marvel movies and Pixar movies and all these, you know, cause I thought, well, I finally did it. I, I, I hit a home run in the world series and nothing crickets. Uh, and then I got a call from my agent, you know, there's this short film and they don't have any money and, uh, but they love your score to weigh the gun. And I just thought weigh the gun was, you know, 15 years ago, they have no money. Uh, no apologies, but no. And my, and she called my agent Rochelle called me back and said, I really think you should watch this. It's really something special. So I watched it and I was like, and it was, it was this, it was a short film called Elsie Hooper. It's on the Blu-ray for Hitler and Bigfoot. If you ever want to see it. And Bob Kraskowski, who wrote and directed Hitler and Bigfoot. When he was in college, he 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 wrote and drew a comic strip, like a three-panel comic strip, and it was this whole long story, a very dark sort of noirish story. And he made a short film of the comic using life-size puppets. <laughs> it's the strangest thing, and yet it works. And uh, an actor named Sean Bridges, who was in Deadwood, for example, and is also in Hitler and Bigfoot, um, he was the voice of the lead character. And I believe he actually was on set kind of manipulating the character, even though I don't think he's necessarily a, a, a trained puppeteer. But Bob comes up with these oddball ideas and they work. And I, I ended up doing the score for that. And as we were finishing, Bob was like, I've got this film I'm trying to make and I would love for you to score it. And I said, OK, what's it called? And he said, you know, the man who kills, killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. To which I thought, well, of course, that's what it's called. I mean, what else would it be called? <laughs> and he's like, do you want to read the script? And I said, I don't really read scripts because I'd rather score the movie. And if I read the script, I start forming, you know, ideas and connections. And he said, well, let me send it to you. I don't want you to say yes because it's, you know, without having some, you know, information. And so I read the first 20, 30 pages of the script and then I put it down and I called it back. I said, yeah, I know enough. I'll, tef I'll definitely do it. I don't want to read anymore. I want to see the movie. And that's kind of how I got involved in it. Um, that would have been somewhere around 2015, 2016. Then they ended up shooting it maybe in 2017. And then I ended up recording the score at the end of 2017, I believe. 2018 in January, we, we mixed it up at Skywalker Ranch. And then 2019, uh, throughout the year 2018, the summer into the winter of 19, we screened it all around the world. And then it came out in February of 19. Um, in terms of writing the score, like every, like most films, I was brought in after they had a cut. I saw the very first cut Bob had, which was long. <laughs> um, but 
uh, Bob and I have had so many sort of heart to heart talks about film and uh, uh, about film in general and about this film in particular. So he asked me to sort of uh, maybe step outside some of the strict bounds of a composer and help him, you know, uh, be a source of uh, information for him about how certain story things are working. You know, one thing that happens on a film is you start, you can lose the ability to see the forest for the trees. And as a composer, a benefit to coming in late in the process is actually I can look at the film and go, I've never seen this before, and I don't understand why this is here. And I don't understand why that is here. And I don't understand why this thing which you introduced doesn't pay off. You know, I can give feedback like that if the filmmakers want it. And if they don't want it, I'm happy to step back and just write music. Um so with Hitler and Bigfoot, I was able to do that, and Bob invited me to do that. You know, the director of Way of the Gun had invited me to do the same thing on that film and on uh, Jack Reacher. Um, the thing with Hitler and Bigfoot uh, then became – there were moments where they had put temp music that uh, worked. There were moments where they would put temp music that didn't work, but I knew that it needed music. And then there were moments where they didn't put music that I thought music could really help amplify what's happening without hurting the audience's appreciation without sort of stringing them along, you know, and hitting them over the head with something. And that's what I did. So for example, there's a scene in, in Barr's house where he's telling the story of, of killing Hitler mm -hmm. and they didn't have any music in that scene. And I thought, well, it reminds me of another scene from an old classic film where a character tells a story and I was inspired by that. And I showed it to Bob and he said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I did it and it ended up in the movie. So you're, you're currently working on Pandora for the CW. Yes. I'm curious because I know like I, I haven't seen the show, but I, I know like one of the things I've heard about it is that like all of the episodes are titled after Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> that's true yeah <laughs> and i was i was just curious as like whether you knew that and if you're ever tempted <laughs> no again uh for copyright reasons uh i could get in real trouble <laughs> if i you know uh infringed on dylan copyrights uh also uh, uh either either they would then have to pay for it or get sued over it neither <laughs> one of which the production can really afford um it's an interesting uh, concept, though, in terms of the writers of the show. Uh, I have a feeling they write the script and then they try to find a Bob Dylan song that fits the <laughs> tone of the script rather than the other way around. But I could be wrong. Maybe they start with a Bob Dylan song and go, let's write a story that based on the lyrics to this song. I don't know. So uh, one last thing I have to ask yeah. is because this is what brought us together. How did you come to meet the author, Andrew Cartmel and write? the theme song for his series of vinyl detective novels. So, um, I'm a huge doctor who fan, um, growing up in upstate New York in the seventies and eighties, it would be on PBS. Uh, and it was just this bizarre show. It was so unlike America, you know, British television was a lot different than American television. Oh, yeah. You know, for one thing, they had that bizarre, um, characteristic of shooting all indoor stuff in video and all outdoor <laughs> stuff on film. So just from a production standpoint, it looked totally alien and everything was done with that sort of uh, uh, weather map technology on video where everything sort of looked flat and garish colors and all this stuff. Anyway, 
being a Doctor Who fan, throughout the years, I would buy the episodes as they came out on DVD. Um, and the DVDs had all this behind-the-scenes footage. And Andrew Cartmel was the showrunner of the show for the last three years of its run, uh, in the original run, before it was revived in 2005. So I saw all these documentaries with this guy, Andrew, talking about Doctor Who. Well, I don't know. Years later, um, I did a s- score for a film called Jack Reacher in 2012. And out of nowhere, I get a request on Twitter, a follower. I, I don't know if it's a request. I, some, I get a notice that somebody's following me on Twitter, <laughs> and it's Andrew Cartmel. And I think, well, that can't be the same guy. <laughs> But I look up the picture and I and I'm like, I think that's the same guy. So I message him and I go, You're not by any chance the the Andrew Cartmel, Cartmel Master Plan and Doctor Who. And uh he's like, To my shame I am or something like that. You know, he's very self deprecating <laughs> and has a sense of humor about it. So he was sort of laughing about it. But it turns out he's a massive film score collector and a massive music fan. And we hit it off. And so that was, you know, two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Uh, in 2014, I moved to England to work on Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I was actually on the set of the film for five, six weeks, helping to uh, produce and you know uh, uh, oversee the whole opera sequence. Uh, it was so intrinsically tied to the music being performed <laughs> in the opera that they needed somebody there who was kind of a musical expert to make sure they shot it in a way that they could then cut it later and that it would all work. And so I was hired to do that. Um, and so living in London, I, uh, reached out to Andrew and said, you know, I'm going to be in London. Maybe we could meet up for a coffee or something. And, you know, he invited me over to his house for dinner. And so I came over and we hit it off and we've been friends, friends ever since. And he's been uh, working on this vinyl detective series of novels as long as I've known him. And sometime in the summer of maybe 2017, it was, I think maybe 18, you know, it all starts to blur together. <laughs> he mentioned to me that he was making a, a soundtrack, a, a, an LP that was essentially a soundtrack to the book series of jazz tracks that you could listen to while you read the book. And I just was, uh, you know, again, I guess maybe that thing of not being afraid to try new things or try anything. I'd never written a theme for a book before, and I thought, can I write a theme for this? This sounds like a really <laughs> cool thing. And it, and it also sounds like a nice hook for your record. And he jumped at the chance. He was super excited about it. And so I did it. And, you know, the theme itself actually kind of comes from the rhythm of the title, The Vinyl Detective. You can almost sing the words, The Vinyl Detective, to the theme that I wrote. And I made a jazz track out of it. Um, you know, with the where it's got the sort of it's, it follows a jazz structure where you present the melody and then different instruments in the band take solos and then you present the melody one last time and then you wrap it up. And so that was uh, that was the idea is to make sort of a, a retro classic jazz track and bookend the album with it. And Andrew approved it and was happy with the results. And now it's out on vinyl. And it's, again, a totally unusual kind of project. <laughs> I don't know anybody else who's done anything like that. Um, but it's fun for me. And it, it's, you know, and of course, if the show ever, becomes, if the book ever becomes a TV show or, or, <laughs> or, or a radio drama or anything like that, it would, it would be lovely to be able to uh, pivot off the soundtrack album into that. Well, it fits right in with all of those classic tracks. Um I've I've got my copy and it awesome. It, it's fantastic. Well, sir, 
thank you so much for taking time hey. out of your afternoon to talk to me. This has been like a real joy. Like this has been a lot of fun. My uh, pleasure. Thanks for uh, interviewing. Thanks to Joe Kramer for talking with me. You can follow him on Twitter and Facebook at Joe Kramer, which is J-O-E-K-R-E-M-E-R, and his website is at JoeKramer.com. You can find links to purchase all of the music you heard on the show in the show notes for this episode, which are at FromAnInspiredBy.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at FromInspiredPod and can be found on Instagram at FromAnInspiredBy. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Click those follow and subscribe buttons, please. Please set up the website and click on the aid and assistance button to help pay for web hosting and long distance fees. And remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks talking with musician and actor Alex Emanuel about his work in the recently released indie rock comedy drama The Incoherence. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.